Well, this is the day the Lord has made, and we are to rejoice and be glad in it, even if it feels chilly, not quite like what we're used to, or if we're used to this, the Lord has made it. It's exactly as it should be, and I'm glad that you're here to join with us to celebrate our Lord. Why don't you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter? That's going to be on page 1075 in that pew Bible. And if you do not have an English Bible at home, you need one. And we would be delighted if you would take that pew Bible as our gift to you. Uh, Please, we'd love for you to have that. It's the most important thing you can have. Just check in with our Connect Corner at the service afterwards and let them know you've taken that. They can help connect you with someone who can teach you and and show you how to read that Bible and understand what God has said in it. So please, that's our gift to you. Well, today we're going to finish up our deep dive into verse 2. And so this is the third sermon of that series, The Choosing of the Chosen Exiles. I want you to imagine that you're coming down High Street to come into the church, and you hear some commotion out front. And as you get a little bit closer, you hear some chants, and it's kind of a unified voice, things saying, perhaps, love is love, and God is love, not hate. And, and you, as you're looking, there's a gathering, and people are holding signs out front, And as you come a little bit closer, you realize there's a a television crew there, some news channels there, and there's a reporter taking pictures, and your heart starts to race a bit. You realize there's a protest outside of the church on Sunday morning. And as you get closer, you look, and you see two co-workers carrying the signs and chanting the chants. And then, to add to the stress of the moment, they look and they see you. And their faces light up and they think you're coming to join them in the protest out front of the church and you realize you've been caught. What are you going to do? Are you going to continue to come through that crowd of those people into the worship service and be identified with this group at the risk of your reputation, at the risk of being seen on national television? What would you do in that moment? When life goes sideways like that, things happen that you don't expect, do you have an anchor that will hold you firm in the faith? And is the anchor so true and so delightful that it will hold you when temptation offers you other things that seem pleasurable as opposed to following Christ? A modern hymn was written just recently, and it it speaks of such an anchor And one of the verses goes like this. Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Unless you are fixed to Christ as an anchor, When persecutions come, you're going to run adrift, and you're going to go into a stormy sea of uncertainty. And that is precisely why Peter started this letter with verses 1 and 2. It is a a soul-securing truth. That's why we spent so much time in it. But I have to ask you, do you know this truth? Does it hold on to you? We need to read that truth even now. And so I invite you to stand and follow along while I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And as we read, remember, this is Holy Scripture. It begins, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The rules of the Lord are true, and they are altogether righteous, so welcome them today. Please have a seat. I want to remind you of the big idea we've had for the last three weeks. It's the big idea for verse 2. This verse reveals three acts of God's choosing. Three acts of God's choosing in order to fortify your confidence that you will stand firm. The first act of God's choosing is his plan to know you. Then last week we looked at the power of God to transform you. And this week, the purpose of God to conform you. So in these first two verses, Peter is setting the stage for everything that will come after. That's why we've slowed down to grasp this. So these Christians that he's writing to, while they're not yet in the furnace of persecution, they can feel the heat. And so God gives to them, and he gives to any Christian who can see the storm clouds brewing on the horizon. He gives to all of us a truth that will fortify us with confidence that we can stand firm in his true grace. This is for all of us Christians. As we saw in verse 2, it begins by showing the source of God's choice. Look at the end of verse 1 into verse 2, the first phrase. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this isn't a foresight. It's not like God chooses those he observes down the time will choose him. But rather, it is a foreknowing that predetermines to have an intimate relationship with that one that is known. So God begins by choosing, having a predetermined plan that will result in an intimate, saving relationship with some. Now, some people object to this point. They say, well, that's unfair that God chooses some and not others. But friends, it's unfair that God chooses any of us. None of us should be chosen. This is called mercy. God planned to know you, a guilty rebel. And then he chose to lavish his love upon you. And his foreknowing ensures that that will happen. Now, these Christians, they're rejected by the world. You may experience that too, Christian, at some point in your life. But you are chosen by God. His choice is irrefutable and it is unchangeable. So this plan to choose has been in place since the foundation of the world. And it was brought about in the second phrase, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now this is that moment in time in which God's plan comes into actuality. It's the moment that the Holy Spirit consecrates or he sets apart the people that God foreknew. He sets them apart from sin and from the world. He sets them apart from judgment and his coming holy wrath. He sets them apart to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And that moment when that happens is what Jesus called being born again. But it begins a lifelong transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it also ensures that one day, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be totally and finally sanctified. 
never to sin again. John, 1 John 1, or I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 expresses the joy of every Christian. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the power of God to transform you. It begins at the moment of your new birth and it will be finished by the God who keeps you and will bring you all the way home to glory. And this brings us to our third act of God's choosing. Look back at verse two. You've been chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of God for you. The purpose of God to conform you. Now we're going to take this in three parts. Unfortunately, I didn't get this to be on the screen, so you'll just have to write this down. The first part is we're going to notice the effect of being chosen. What is the effect of being chosen? Okay, so when you're born again, you are a new creation. You are made into the likeness of Christ, and we grow up into that throughout our life. But this doesn't mean that you are going to float on a cloud with a harp. It's not meant to be a spiritual holiday. You are chosen and set apart for a life of obedience. A life of obedience. Many of us know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Listen to how it describes the sanctifying work of the Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But then verse 10 gives us the purpose, the necessary results of that work of grace. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The moment that you're regenerated, you become God's masterpiece who is set apart for a life of obedience or walking in these good works that God prepared beforehand for you to be in them. Now, as we walk in obedience, it builds assurance that you have been chosen. But part of the, the radical nature of the new birth is that the creation of a new will and new affections. So this life of obedience becomes something that you want to do. You care about the things that God cares about. You love the things that God loves. You hate the things that God hates. And you want to do the things that please God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 really captures the heart of the new creation. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our primary purpose to say no to sin or anything else that will hinder our life from pleasing God in some way. So this means that we wage war against sin. It means that we are excited for evangelism. It means we're launched into loving the body radically. Now, friend, if... If this doesn't describe your life, perhaps it is because you do not have life in Jesus Christ. If you're not determined to submit yourself to whatever God has revealed in his word, you may not be saved. If you feel free to pick and choose the parts of the Bible to obey and what parts to believe, you can have no certainty that you are in fact born again. Unfortunately, many people have this idea that 
just liking Jesus is enough. That coming to church, rallying around other Christians is enough. But Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for people who will submit their life to his lordship, who will be his slaves. Now, some of you in your life perhaps responded to a message that simply said, if you accept Jesus into your heart, then he'll make you happy. Friends, that's a false gospel. Now, there is joy, unimaginable joy in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ will only receive those who repent of sin and submit to his lordship. And there's immense joy in that. But Christ will not become a magical genie that will fulfill all your desires to make your life better. You see, Christ is not a pathway to your best life now or some self-actualization. This is the gospel. You must know that God is immensely perfect and he is holy and he hates sin. And every day your sin offends him and you remain under his coming judgment and his holy wrath. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It commands you to repent of your rebellion and it commands you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is more than just agreeing that this is good. It's even more than agreeing that it's true and right. Faith is total trust in Jesus Christ himself, which means a glad obedience to his lordship. Jesus put it in many different ways, but one way that's particularly powerful is in Matthew 11. Listen to Jesus' call to sinners in verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To, this call to take on yourself his yoke and to learn from him is a call to put yourself under his authority. Jesus is not going to just be a, a, an advisor for you or some kind of a guru giving you suggestions to improve your life. He demands your total allegiance. But don't forget what kind of a Lord he is. Did you hear it? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's gentle and lowly in heart. He gives you rest for your souls. But that only comes by means of full submission to his authority. And so to the repentant sinner, there's hope. God gives you the grace to obey His grace doesn't make obedience easy, but it makes it possible. John 3.36 is pointedly simplistic. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. The evidence of true faith is obedience to the Son. Unbelief is disobedience to the Son. So the one who believes looks to Jesus Christ as Lord and will receive eternal life. But the unbeliever does not obey the call to repent. He remains under the wrath of God. That's not a small thing to be under. We're given warnings of what that means in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. The Lord Jesus is being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. God takes obedience to his son very seriously. And friend, you need to as well. 
Have you obeyed the call of the gospel to repent and submit your life wholly to Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you can do that even right now. You can come to the table today to celebrate God's work for you in Jesus Christ. So being chosen for the purpose of obedience starts with that initial act of obeying the gospel call to repent and believe. And we saw last week the initial sanctification will necessarily result in progressive sanctification. Likewise, this initial obedience to the gospel will result in a lifelong obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. The decisions you make, you bring to him in prayer. You submit to what he says and you do what he says. Now, when you are made alive in Christ, God grants you that faith and and repentance. It means you have a new desire to submit and to obey. Paul talked about this in in his ministry. He described it this way, Romans 1 verse 5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Then he repeats it at the end of Romans. In Romans 16 verse 26, He says that the message about Jesus Christ has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Just a little bit earlier, Romans 15.8, Paul sums up all of his evangelistic ministry this way. Romans 15.8, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Gospel obedience involves both attitude and action. So obedience, what is that? It's a compound word. It means there are two words stuffed together to make a bigger word. So a compound word, you can think of ball and foot. You get football. In America, it means something very different than here, but it's still, you get that idea. There's a fire and a fighter, you get a firefighter. There's an airport, there's catfish. Strange word, but we know what it means. So obedience, you have two words. The first word, it means to put yourself under, to submit to. The second word that's put together with it is to listen and understand. So you put this together, what do you get? It's an understanding that results in submission. It's a commitment to living under that word. Now, for parents who have children, there have been times perhaps when you said to your children, you need to go do this now to clean up that mess you left. And the child might say in a very polite voice, yes, I hear you, I'll get to it. And then nothing happens. And everyone knows Therefore, there has not been obedience because it's not merely acknowledging what has been said, but it is following through on that obedience as well. In a similar way, the rules of Christ, when we hear them, obedience means you go and you do them as well. There's a group of people today, they call themselves Christians, but they call themselves red letter Christians because they say that the only authority in the Bible are the words of Christ, those that sometimes are printed in red letters. So they say that Paul and James have hijacked Christianity, and so we need to go back to Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. But the problem is, every word in the New Testament is the words of Christ. Paul doesn't give us a different religion from, from John or from James. 
He gives us the truth from Jesus Christ himself. Paul said this, Galatians 1, 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive this from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything Paul said is from Jesus Christ himself. And that's why all of the New Testament and all of the Bible is to be submitted to. So what does it mean to obey the gospel? Let's get this out one more time so you hear this clearly. We can look at Acts 17. Paul is in the city of Athens in Greece. And in Acts 17, verse 30, he explains, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then the next verse, he explains why. Because he, God, has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that judge, raising him from the dead. So obedience, how does this look in our life? It begins with a conviction for sin. You're aware of the reality of sin, that there's judgment coming. You're aware of Christ and his, his majesty and glory. And then you realize you have offended God, but you want to please him. You love God and his word. And in that moment, you can't remain complacent any longer. You can't remain complacent in your rebellion. And so you're launched into lifelong obedience. And it's, it's not going to be perfect obedience. We know that. But it's forward progress. And every time afterwards you realize you're not pleasing God, you turn from that sin and by faith you return to obeying the Lord Jesus. So it's crucial to remember the foundation and the fuel for obedience. Glad, humble obedience that can last for life comes out of believing the truth that you are chosen, you're foreknown, and you're sanctified. What does this look like in our lives? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Here's a command, a gospel command. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What are you supposed to put on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Okay, so the command is not just for external behavior. The command is for internal attitudes as well. But did you hear what it's based on? Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There's that foreknowledge and the sanctified. As people who are that, this truth will launch you into obedience. And that's why we spent two weeks looking at those first two phrases. You see, this is crucial for building a church that will stand firm. A, a firm church is a loving, a joyful, and a forgiving church. And how do we know that? Because after commanding us to put this on, it says, this is what it's going to look like. Here are the results, these godly virtues. Colossians 3, starting at verse 13. What will we look like? We'll be bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Does that sound like drudgery and, and harsh duty that you might think of about obedience is? That'll radically change this church. And you're experiencing the assurance of God. Obedience 
in its essence, is a way we express our love for God. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A few verses later, he added this crucial part. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, listen to this, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, obedience is not just a way to love God. It's a way to experience the love of God to us. The American hymn writer John Samus wrote in 1887, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So the purpose of God in choosing you and sanctifying you is to conform you through a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's powerful grace, it all begins that initial obedience to the gospel. That's the effect of being chosen. The next part of the purpose in being conformed to God is the security of being chosen. The security of being chosen. Look back at verse 2. You're chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you read that and think, what is that all about? Sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Why is that put here after all these other things? Friends, this is your security in Christ. Sprinkling brings security. Now, there's almost certainly one event that Peter has in mind when he wrote this. And the fact that he doesn't explain this means that this idea was probably well known to Christians of the time. And we need to understand what this means as well. To give you an idea of how important this is, we need to make note that twice in the book of Hebrews, this particular event was called out. Let me read those two verses for you in Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 19 is the first one. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, sprinkled by the blood of of Jesus. Peter's referring to this event. Later, Hebrews 12, verse 24. But you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Okay, so what's going on here? We have to take a journey. We're going to go back to Exodus 24. So open up your Bible to Exodus 24. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 68. Page 68. In Exodus 24, the people are entering into a covenant ceremony with God. Exodus 24, look at verse 3. Now you can follow along while I read, starting in verse 3 of Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the commandments of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain, in verse 5. Then he set, sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, We will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. 
Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. The covenant, that word means to cut. Now in this time in history, to express the gravity of what was at stake in a covenant, after terms were drawn up, an animal would be cut in half. Blood from that animal would then be sprinkled or splattered onto both parties. It seems like a grotesque thing, but what it's saying is, if you do not fulfill your part of the covenant, what happened to this animal will happen to you. It's a very sobering moment, and it would graphically remind them of what was at stake if they broke the covenant. So in verse 6 here, there's this altar that has been built, and it is splattered first. What that means is God is one who will accept forgiveness. He will give forgiveness for sins that are are petitioned to be forgiven. And this moment points forward for them to Christ of what he would do on the cross. Jesus echoes Moses' words at the Last Supper. For example, Mark 14, verse 24. Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Friends, the only blood that can remove sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. He's a spotless blood, spotless lamb of God. So God is able to forgive because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was abundantly sufficient to satisfy the demands of perfect holy justice. So the people see the blood go on the altar first and then they respond, we will do and obey all that the Lord commanded. And this is the obedience that Peter's talking about. This is a sprinkling of the blood that he's talking about in 1 Peter. This obedience was sealed with blood. The blood didn't purify them. It consecrated them. It set them apart for commitment to their vows. Now, on weddings, we see a similar statement of gravity. The couple will make a vow to consecrate themselves to one another. The man says, I am committed to you alone. The woman says, and to you alone, I am committed. They are set apart from all others to be committed to that one. And it's a serious moment. That's why the breaking of vows is so tragic and serious. So when Moses sprinkled the people with the blood, in verse 8, it means that they were expected to follow through. Can you imagine seeing drops of blood splattered on your clothing and on your skin, and it's on your neighbor, and you realize, this is serious. To fail in my obedience will mean my death. But at that moment, this is important you hear this, listen. The blood comes on them, but they remember it was first on the altar. God is saying, I know you're not going to be perfect in your obedience. That's why I've gone first. It's on me. I always have forgiveness for you when you fail in your obedience. Christ's blood declares that God is still willing to forgive us when we disobey, Christian. It is because God accepted the sacrifice of Christ, we can continue on. And that's why Jesus said to drink this cup in remembrance of him. Not just remembering his remarkable life, but remembering his perfect sacrifice that is so perfect, there's never a need for another sacrifice. The demands of justice are met. Forgiveness is provided for your ongoing failures. So Christian, come to the table today because it is for sinners like me and you. If you go back to Peter, Christians are foreknown by the Father. They're chosen to be in that personal saving relationship with him. The sanctifying work of the Spirit sets these chosen exiles apart from a life of sin to a life of obedience. 
but it won't cost you your blood because Jesus paid it all. Now, all of God's promises to you are yes in Christ Jesus. So we come to Christ, not just for the benefits, but though they are many and great, we come now to please him through a grace-empowered life of obedience. Do you remember that order in Exodus 24? Animals are sacrificed first, and then the people are sprinkled. In the same way, what Peter calls in verse 19, the precious blood of Christ that's given for us first, and then we're set apart for a life of obedience. This moment cannot be overstated. Christ's sacrifice for our sins is for all time. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18 put it this way. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have now become friends, slaves of righteousness. The new covenant is all of grace, but it is a covenant of obedience. We are chosen to obey. And the promise is not only that you'll be able to obey, but that it is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the significance of being sprinkled. Now, there's some people who are going to say, whoa, wait a second. Christianity is not about obeying. It's about grace. If we talk about obedience, it's legalistic. We, we need to talk about grace, but it's a grace-empowered obedience. The Bible doesn't dismiss obedience. Remember, the new covenant makes commands. It has expectations that we'll obey. But it promises that the desire to obey is produced at the new birth. Our part of obedience is sustained by God's part of ongoing grace and forgiveness when we fail. And that's the reason why Peter wrote in this order to show us what happens along this way. Obedience is followed by the security that comes from sprinkling. 1 John 1.9 is directed to all Christians for when we fail to obey. Remember this, beloved. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the table symbolizes and why none of us should ever miss the opportunity to be at the table. So Christian, God chose you for obedience to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled by his blood. It means God will never cast you out. Isn't that an incredible truth? Isn't that worth celebrating with our lives and our voices and our, our actions toward one another? It will keep you firm. Should there ever be a protest out front, you'll run up to the people and say, please come in. Have you met my Savior, Jesus? You need to know him. I'm going to go in. I'll be praying for you. And when I come out, can I take you to a meal to explain to you the abundant grace of Jesus Christ that causes me to act in boldness and share the truth with you. <laughs> It'll keep you from being knocked over and you'll find yourself astonished at the fact that you're standing firm. God's faithfulness to you will bring security to you. We want to finish with one mighty roar of joy, the advantages of being chosen. Now notice that Peter finishes these profound verses with this phrase, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
It's not just using a common expression. When he says this, he's expecting this will be given to you as you take the truth of this entire letter and welcome it in. It'll help you to stand true and firm in the grace of God. Recome trial or temptation. He starts out with grace. It is a kind disposition. It gives you incredible good that you don't deserve. And it is astounding. But Christian, it is more. Grace is the power that saves you, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and the power that will keep you all the way till you meet the Lord. Do you remember when Paul was overwhelmed by that trial and he prayed three times, Lord, remove it. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? My grace is sufficient. That is a powerful grace for you. God is with you each moment through the active presence of the Holy Spirit. And more than just wishful thinking, Peter is declaring God's blessing on all those who are in Christ Jesus that claim these truths. Then he talks about the peace. The peace of God is only possible for those who are at peace with God. That only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only for those who trust in Jesus alone. And when you do, the Lord breaks down the wall of hostility between you and God. And Christ himself is our peace with God. And that's how you can know the peace of God that passes all understanding Even in the most anxiety-filled moments, you'll be guarded with this peace. Peter expected not just that it'll, it'll trickle in. Did you catch that word? Be multiplied to you. In fact, in these two verses, this is the first verb mentioned. It is a powerful verb of expectation. To be multiplied is to just breed like rabbits. It is growing and you can't control them all. They're going everywhere. In your life, grace and peace are abounding. It is ongoing, growing to the maximum quantity and quality in your life. And can you imagine coming across a life that is increasing in grace and peace? Peter could. He lived this. He knew what God had done for him. He knew that the ongoing obedience and progression and sanctification would result in this increasing undeserved spiritual blessing. As we finish, I just want to point you to six six wonderful blessings that come from this truth. Pastor John MacArthur wrote about these, and I, I just want to reword them to pass them on to you. Six of the blessings have been chosen by God. First, it executes pride. Puts it to death. I love the hymn that Isaac Watts wrote. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? No Christian comes with cockiness of God's glad to have me here. Every time we come to the table, we think, how can this be? One such as me. Humility grows, pride is executed. Knowing that God chooses you exalts God in the most magnificent way because faith is from God. Repentance, also from God. The new birth, from God. Obedience, from God. Eternal security, guaranteed by God. From start to finish, God alone gets the glory. We get the joy of magnifying his grace. Number three, it expands evangelistic zeal. The Father foreknows, but we do not know whom he has foreknown. We don't know who are his. And so we go out confidently, all those who are his, when they hear the gospel, they will respond. 
If they don't respond, it may not be their time, or maybe they're not chosen. But we share the gospel liberally, confident that it's not about getting the technique right. It's simply giving the gospel and letting God do his work. It expands evangelistic zeal. Number four, knowing God has chosen you will elevate your joy. It will elevate your joy. Rejoice, Christian. God loves to lavish his love on you. He loves to bring you home to live with him and to know his glory eternally. It will elevate your joy to know that God has chosen you apart from anything you've done. Fifthly, it expects holiness. The new creation means new desires. It includes longing to be holy as he is holy. Understanding you've been chosen leads to expectant holiness, not sin. Speaking of God's electing grace, the great London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, for the 19th century, he said this, Shall I transgress after such love? Shall I go astray after so much loving kindness and tender mercy? Nay, my God. Since thou hast chosen me, I will love thee. I will live to thee. I will give myself to thee to be thine forever, solemnly consecrating myself to thy service. Number six, knowing that God has chosen you enlivens your courage. It doesn't matter who turns on you. God will never leave you or forsake you. It it emboldens your courage to testify to the grace of God. There's no court ruling. There's no judgment for friends or acquaintances. There's no hostility from neighbors that can overrule the words of God. What Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christian, when we come to the table, we come with confidence. The promise to complete the good work that God began and he ratified at the cross. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice that satisfied God's justice for all sinners who were chosen. Christ's work was sealed by his blood, which has been sprinkled on you in a spiritual but true sense. I'm going to ask that the music team will come up to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. And I want to quote one more verse from that hymn that I began with. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow. Oh, my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Let's continue to prepare ourselves for the table as we sing, I surrender all.